F.B. Meyer wrote, so long as men live in the world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. There's only one scene in history by which it is surpassed, and that is where the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance. God and Abraham were friends in a common sorrow up to a certain point. Though the infinite love of God stepped in to stay the hand of Abraham at the critical moment, sparing his friend what he would not spare himself. As Lloyd mentioned last week, the allusion and parallels to Isaac and Christ are impossible to miss. And we'll see some more of those this morning as we continue to look at this greatest trial of all. Uh, to live as a believer in Christ, live faithfully, defies logic. To trust God for what we cannot see, as Hebrews says so eloquently, faith is confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. We're trusting in something we can't see. We can read it. We can be told. We can walk with people who've experienced it, but we cannot see it. So there is a formidable challenge. It is unreasonable to be faithful from a human perspective. Uh, this passage is a culmination of many things. From Judaism, this is one of the most important stories of all of the Pentateuch. From Christianity, it is one of the most important stories in all the Pentateuch. And for Islam, it is one of the most important stories in their religion. In the event of this Isaac-Ishmael account, they, of course, the Muslims see this as Ishmael, not Isaac, but the event of this story, fascinatingly, covers two of the world's largest religions. And the way we view this sacrifice of Isaac and the way it reflects and portrays the personal work of Christ is striking, and in some respects, we cannot overstudy it. The tension of the story, does he believe God? Will he kill his son because God has asked him to? And Lloyd last week set up a, a comparison, an analogy for you with the shim, if you weren't here last weekend. And the idea was that this shim, he, you were to write down your Isaac. What is the thing that you're clutching to that you're unwilling to give back to God? Now, we don't sacrifice in the way uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, nor the Old Testament economy, but it's a picture of what we're clenching, what we're hanging on to, what we're maybe trusting or loving more than God, what might be in the way of a faithful life of the believer. The record reveals no doubt on the part of Abraham, and that's why the story is so striking. For the believer, for you and me, this story is about God testing his people. And he's going to test you. And he's going to test me. We will be tested, not if, but when. If you live long enough, you will be tested. I would submit if you come to Christ as a young person by elementary school, you're going to be tested all the time. You're going to be tested enormously as a teenager. You're going to be tested in high school unlike any time in your life up to that. The teen years are the most just fomenting, tumultuous years for a young person. Today, it's a challenge to believe Christ in that context. And then you go to college. And you'll be tested in college by every other professor, if not every professor. You'll be college by friends and by peers and by roommates. You'll be college by decisions in life. When you get married, ho, 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 then the tests begin. Two sinners glued together that get to sleep in the same bed. Oh, what fun is this going to be? And then God gives you children, or you don't get children, you're infertile, or you find a lump, or your dad has dementia, or you get cancer, or your son or daughter take a hard left turn in life and break your heart. 
or, or, or. You will be tested. And most of you in this room have been and continue to be tested. Is God a capricious, malevolent God who, who tests us and rolls his hands and fingers and laughs? <laughs> or is he a God who tests us for different reasons? F.B. Meyer called this test God's vote of confidence in Abraham's life. I really like that. God's vote of confidence. Abraham, you've followed me this far. You've believed me this long. You've obeyed me to this point. Yes, you've made some missteps. Yes, you've lied. But you've followed me. You've stayed with me. You've been faithful. And I would argue that Isaac is probably late 20s. He could be as early as his early 30s, as old as his early 30s in this text. He's not a teenager anymore. So the 25 years he waited for the baby, we can add at least 10 or 20 more to that equation. And see, this has been a long journey. And God is saying to Abraham, you've walked with me. You know me now. I've gotten you out of thick and thin. I've provided for you the whole way. Do you trust me with the ultimate thing? Will you give back what I gave to you? And that is his vote of confidence, F.B. Meyer says, in the life of Abraham. Man, on our part, tends to get more and more demanding of God with our requests. Whether it's a test or something we want in life, we want God to work in a certain way. Cindy and I have one of our closest friends this moment in ICU in Virginia in, uh, in a very precarious state where she may or may not live. It's probably Cindy's closest friend in life. Oh, we want God to answer our prayer our way. We want God to relieve that situation and solve that problem. But maybe that's not God's plan. We want that for this woman's husband. Maybe that's not God's plan. So how do we face the test? How does he face the test? How do her children face the test? Do we obey God no matter the outcome? The life of the believer is not a blind faith that we're stumbling around and spun in the dark and dizzy. It's right in front of us. Do I trust him? And will I do the next thing by obeying him? James Crenshaw writes it this way. In short, it answers the most important question. What does it mean to fear God? Perhaps the simplest way of describing this is for some people, listen carefully, true worship means to walk alone into God-forsakenness, or worse, to discover the Lord is one's worst enemy. For some people, true worship means to walk alone in God-forsakenness, or worse, to discover the Lord's as one, the Lord as one's worst enemy. What's he mean? All the props aside, all the human things we lean on, all things we tend to trust and believe in, will you walk into what seems like God-forsakenness, trusting him? Because the human perspective rarely, if ever, sees it the right way. Think back on the trials in your life. Did they work out the way you thought they would work out? Did they resolve? Maybe they're unresolved yet. Maybe the new norm is living with an unresolved issue the rest of your life. That requires faith, not success. Well, I want to review the passage that Lloyd introduced. It won't be an exposition proper, but we will look at it expositionally. The first two verses of chapter 22 were the test. That God called Abraham to offer his one and only son. The irony of the test is Abraham could not know it was a test. Don't forget this. It's an obvious thing. How many of you like pop tests? 
How many of us like to go to school, to college? Let's have a pop test. I hated pop tests. Everybody hated pop tests. We thought those teachers, they deserve a special place of punishment in hell, right? You're going to give us pop tests. They're going to test you. Well, what's a good teacher doing? Are they testing to fail us? No. They're testing to see what we don't know. And more importantly, if they're a good teacher, they're testing to see where they have failed in teaching the student what he or she needs to learn. So pop tests aren't meant to fail you. Pop tests are meant to see what you know, what you don't know, what the teacher needs to realign. And so in a way, these tests are pop tests. If we knew there was going to be a test on Friday, what do we ask between Monday and Friday? Will this be on the test? And the teacher says, well, I want you to know these 10 things for the test. That's all you care about, jotting down those 10 things. So Friday, you got a good chance of getting most of them right. That's not a test. For a test to be a test, we can't know it's a test. So don't forget the obvious. The language is unmistakable. Genesis 12, the first four verses, compare and contrast with Genesis 22, the first three verses, in a remarkable way. If you're a precept person, a Bible study fellowship person, or a person who loves to study Scripture, I cannot encourage you enough, you will never exhaust studying Genesis 12. Lay out Genesis 12 over Genesis 22, the first three or four verses, and compare and contrast what God says to Abraham there and what he says to him here. It's remarkable and quite chilling to see this, what we might call in language, an inclusio. The parentheses of what God began the story with and how God is ending the story with the promise he made to the patriarch Abraham. The detail is agonizing in the test. Take your son, your only son. Whom you love, the pain is unbearable. Each new adverbial phrase, each adjective piles on. You couldn't just say, take Isaac. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, and kill him as a sacrifice. The obedience of verses 3 through 10 are the absolute submission of Abraham to God's word. He obeys without delay. There's no delay in his rising up to follow God. Now there's a phrase that occurs four times in the Abraham narrative, arose early in the morning. It occurs verbatim four times and it's compelling by nature of repetition. Hebrew, especially your Old Testament Hebrew, has a way of teaching and repetition or restatement are very important because just like our parents were educated, repetition was the mother of education and so you repeat it over and over and over. It's true in Hebrew literature. And this phrase occurs four times. I want to show them to you briefly. In Genesis 19, 27, this is after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the bartering, essentially, that Abraham had with God. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 10 righteous, back and forth, will you destroy it? God says, no, I won't destroy it if there's 10 righteous. So, of course, the destruction occurs. 19, 27, we read, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. What do we learn about this phrase? Abraham is on pins and needles, we might say. What is God going to do? Are there any faithful there? What will happen? And he goes early in the morning without delay is the point. When you do something early in the morning, there's no delay. The second time we see it is an interesting parallel. It's Abimelech. Abimelech has taken Abraham's wife. The second time he lied, he's taken his wife into the royal harem, we would call it. And God essentially, the summary of the story is, if you don't deal with Abraham and have him pray for you, I'm going to kill you. And in verse 28 of chapter 20, Abimelech arose early in the morning. We doubt he slept much that night. He stirred up the whole kingdom. We've got to get this Abraham back here. He's got to pray for us or this God of his is going to kill us all. And so he does without delay early in the morning. 
In Genesis 21, where Abraham is told, God has told Abraham to send Ishmael and, and Hagar away, he doesn't want to do it. His wife does not like the way uh, Ish, uh, Ishmael is taunting Isaac. He says, get rid of this Egyptian maidservant and her son. And so the Lord tells Abraham he can do it. Send him away. Lloyd talked about it in terms of necessary endings. In chapter 21, verse 14, so Abraham arose early in the morning. Did he want to get rid of Ish, uh, Ishmael and Hagar? No. But it's the, no delay in the obedience. Next morning. And finally, in, verse 20, in chapter 22, verse 3, we read today, God tells him to sacrifice Isaac, and then we read, so Abraham arose early in the morning. No delay, no delay, no delay. He gets up and he does it. Um, years ago, I've shared this story many times, forgive me for repeating, but uh, we were, Cindy and I were in a group where Elizabeth Elliot was part of a, a presentation, a panel, and we had a Q&A session, and some person asked Elizabeth Elliot a question. It was one of those comment class questions. It wasn't really a question. It was like this long, you know, basically say yes to what my view of this thing, you know, and, and, the, and this person used the word struggle in their comment slash question, that they struggle with God in this area. And Elizabeth, if you've ever heard her speak, is a very a very sincere, dry, straight woman. She mentions no words, no warm fuzzies come out of Elizabeth's mouth. And she says, quote, I've always defined struggle as delayed obedience. Never forgot it. And the person who asked that question kind of, you know, skulked away. Early in the morning, early in the morning, early in the morning. Okay, question for you and me. Do you obey God right away? Do you get up and say, I'm going to obey God? Or do you get up and have a dialogue? Do you debate? It's a struggle. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. And you fill in the blanks. Other people, my husband, my wife, my kids. I'm not. Or do you say, early in the morning? And the picture we have from that little phrase, arising early in the morning, is a good lesson to all of us. Abraham trusted God in between, where from a human perspective, there is no rationale. Methodically, he plans the whole execution of how he's going to sacrifice his son. Everything down to arising early, saddling donkeys, taking two servants, getting the wood, putting the wood on Isaac's back. And interestingly to me, and very notable, he carries the knife in the fire. He will not delegate to his son nor to his servants the instrument of death and the means of sacrifice. He will carry the instrument of death and he will carry the means of sacrificing his only son. He won't give that to someone else. In chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, we get the New Testament's insight on the Old Testament. Big picture, God inspires authors to write these books that compile the 66 books of your Bible. The doctrine of inspiration. God speaks to them in a unique way. There's the big A author, in this case Moses, uh, God, the little A author, Moses. In the book of Hebrews, the big A God, uh, a author, God, the little A author, we don't know his name, but the author of Hebrews. But the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11 a very interesting passage. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. That word monogenes occurs very few times, and it refers to the John 3.16. God gave his only begotten son, one of a kind is what it means, a unique son, monogenes. And he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was said, uh, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac 
your descendants will be called. He considered God is able to raise people even from the dead. That last phrase, the author of Hebrews, gives us insight to what the inspiration of the author of Hebrews had that we don't have reading the story of Genesis by itself. What's he saying? When Abraham carried the knife and the fire up to the mountain range of Moriah, he believed, you know what? God could raise this boy after I kill him. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but the New Testament colors in the story. What's the, the, the narrative is marvelous, and it's complex, and it's multifaceted. But what's going on here? There was a dead womb named Sarah, well beyond childbearing. There was a dead husband named Abraham who could not procreate. And God, we might say, rescued the womb of a dead woman and gave him Isaac when she was long past childbearing. God again could rescue a boy he killed with a knife and burned with fire if he wanted to. If he can open the womb of a dead, a dead womb, can he raise a dead son? And Abraham concluded that he could. Abraham's offering is one who trusts. We don't want to rush over the three days journey. Don't want to make too much or too little of it. It's a theme throughout Israel's life. Remember, we've, we've alluded to the story of Abraham being a parallel to Israel in Egypt. Israel, in their Egyptian captivity, will look back on the life of Abraham and Sarah for hope that they were delivered out of Abimelech, they were delivered out of Egypt, that, that uh, Sarah was delivered twice from death. And they'll look at that as a metaphor that God delivered the patriarch, he'll deliver us. And they clung to those promises. And it gets real rich in the narrative. If you remember the story of God intervening in the burning bush to Moses, he tells Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you say you want to take God's people, Israel, out a three days journey into the wilderness to worship me. And that is repeated throughout the plague narrative, that we may go a three days journey into the wilderness and worship. We may go a three days journey to worship over and over again. And here we see the first tip of that predating the story of Israel's captivity, three day journey to worship on, uh, in the mountains of Moriah. Genesis 22, verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And perhaps one of the most marvelous answers in all the Abraham story. Abraham says, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Little is said, but much is meant. God provided everything up to Abraham's life at this point. And he could look back on his call from Ur of the Chaldees to getting him out of thick and thin in Egypt, out of Abimelech, to getting Lot out of Sodom, all the ways God provided for him and carried for him and bringing his son to bear. And now he says, the Lord will provide. Um, a point we miss here, and I love the way that your English Bibles render this, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. This is very important, and the application is very powerful to me. When we come to worship, we come to worship him. It's for him, not for us. Now, I do not hear this in Middle Tennessee. I've been here almost seven years now, and I've never once heard this, but I've heard it a lot in my travels and other places I've lived, where people will go to church for various reasons and say, well, I didn't get much out of that sermon. I didn't get much out of that worship. I don't like that word. I didn't get much. That's a consumer mindset of worship. It's contrary to the nature of worship. Worship is for the one we worship, 
not for the worshiper. When you come in these doors, for whatever reason you come here, I hope a part of it is you come to worship your God, your maker. You come to give thanks. You come to pray. You come to praise. The, the corporate assembly is the unique assembly on the planet. And as I've said many times, it's the most important audience on the planet. This gathering here is more important than any concert that will ever come to Nashville. Because you're the people of God. And you're worshiping God, your Savior. Now, intrinsically, when we worship, we benefit. We find joy. We find forgiveness. We find encouragement. We find conviction. We find repentance. But it's, that's not the point. That's the byproduct of a good worshiper. A worshiper comes to worship Yahweh Elohim, Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Not, we don't come to see what we can get out of it. And it's a mindset that the American consumer needs to reframe when we assemble for worship. Verse 9, then he came, he, they came to the place where God had told him, and Abraham built the altar where the, and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. The word bound only occurs here in the Bible. On the altar, on top of the wood, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Many have observed there is no sign of a struggle. Sanctified imagination can be a dangerous thing, but I still contend that, that Isaac is probably late 20s or even early 30s. And it seems to me that the conversation based on verses 7 and 8, we don't know what else was said, but I have this sanctified vision that once he built the altar and put the wood on it, there was no struggle, and Isaac willingly crawled up on it. And then Abraham binds him. And when he says the Lord's going to provide and tells his son Isaac that, for whatever reason, he could not wrestle him probably. He's an old man, and Isaac would be in the fit in the prime of his life. The word bound is the Hebrew word Aked, roughly transliterated A-Q-E-D, the binding. It's a tradition that's followed even today in Judaism about the binding of the sacrifice. It's a very critical, almost a ceremonial term because it's only found once in the Bible where he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Any of you read Kierkegaard when you were in college or grad school? Soren Kierkegaard, any of you? Um, if you did, you know, you either love him or hate him. Uh, nobody really knows what the heck he believed. But um, he has some incredible insights on this story. He's written a book called Fear and Trembling. And he called Abraham the knight, K-N-I-G-H-C, the knight of faith. And he contrasts that with the ethical man. The ethical, we said the ethical Christian does the right thing in the right way at the right time because we're supposed to. But Abraham was the knight, K-N-I-G-H-C. He was the knight of faith. He would do whatever the king said, even if it was beyond the law. And so Kierkegaard takes an interesting tact on this. Listen to what he says. Ethical man obeys the law, but the knight of faith knows a higher obligation as a free individual in relationship to God. Abraham is called to renounce all for God, all that he holds precious, including any ethical idea of right or wrong, because it is the word of God he obeys. He continues, There are many a father who has lost a child, but then it was God. It was the unalterable, the unsearchable will of the Almighty. It was his hand who took the child. Not so with Abraham. For him was reserved the harder trial. And Isaac's fate was laid along with the knife in Abraham's hand. There he stood, the old man and his only hope. 
but he did not doubt. He did not look anxiously to the right or to the left, nor did he challenge heaven with prayers. I love that. He knew that it was God the Almighty who was trying, who was trying him. He knew that it was the hardest sacrifice he could ever be required to give, but he also knew that no sacrifice was too hard when God required it. And the old man drew the knife. Well, the provision is in verses 11 to 14. When God sees that Abraham is willing to slay his son, he makes both an approval statement and a provision. He approves of his faith and he provides an alternative. Um, back to Genesis 22, 1, again, we hear the call of Abraham from the angel, verse 11. Abraham knows now it's a test. God doesn't take delight in human sacrifice, but he will require the ultimate sacrifice in his son. Abraham feared God. He would not withhold his only son. He feared God to the point that he would take laughter, the joy of his life, and kill him because he worshiped God and feared him. The fear of the Lord is perhaps one of the second most important themes of this text. Do we fear God? And we need to do a little reclaiming work, I think, in this idea of fearing God. Uh, some of you, or many of you are in the music industry and writers and whatnot. You remember a time when the lyrics were full of Abba. And even some of our, our favorite wonderful worship leaders would talk about Abba Daddy. And I always cringed inside when I heard that daddy reference to uh, Abba. It can mean daddy in a horizontal view for a Hebrew Jewish home, but it doesn't mean daddy when you're talking vertically. It means father. And there's a diminutive nature to calling God daddy that goes beyond the pale of the language. And the reason I say this is because um, in, our, in our hipster, urban, you know, happening culture, you like to sit down with, we don't do Starbucks anymore, we do coffee houses because Starbucks is passe. So you go to a coffee house and you want to hang with Jesus and drink a, you know, Cuban espresso latte with brown organic sugar, whatever you want. In it, and you're going to sit there and hang with Jesus. No, you're not. You're going to fall on your face like a dead man when you see Jesus. When John in Patmos Island sees the vision, I love that phrase, I fell on my face like a dead man. He is a holy, awesome God. And we need to recast this word fear of not just respecting people, but respecting God because he's holy. He is awesome. He's the only one you ever use the word awesome attached to. Because awesome is the idea of a holy fear. There should be a, a little tremulous nature in our worship. When you open that word, when you pray to him, there should be just a little tinge. Yes, we have bold access. Yes, we can bring any prayer request. Yes, we can come to him with anything through the work of Jesus Christ, not on your own. On your own, it doesn't, doesn't pass the first step out the door. We only come because of what Christ did. And I think it would do us all well to regain a reverence in the sense of this is the holy word of God. This isn't just a book. It's God's very word. And when he says something, do we struggle to obey? Or do we run to obey? Do we get up early in the morning willingly and obey? Well, Abraham fears the Lord and says, I will love you and obey you no matter what you ask of me. God's provision is the main teaching. Verse 14, the Lord will provide. In the margin of your Bible, it probably says Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh, something to that effect. Um, the word, letter J does not occur in the Hebrew alphabet. There's no J sound. It's a Yah sound. 
And the word for God, Yahweh, one of the several words, Elohim, Adonai, uh, but Yahweh, we don't know how to pronounce. Roughly transliterated Y-H-W-H. And some of your Bibles might have vowels put in there to look like Yahweh or Yahweh. Some pronounce it. And the second word, Jira, really is Ra'ah. So it's not Jehovah Jireh, with apologies to the songwriters who use those words. It's Ra'ah. It's to see and a provision. What Abraham is saying when he says the Lord will provide, he's not just saying he's going to make a provision. He goes, the Lord sees and provides. The Lord is seeing what we're doing, Isaac, and he calls this place the Lord will provide. The Lord will appear. The Lord will be seen. And Abraham will look in the thicket and he'll see a ram caught by its horns. We read earlier. So the Lord provided. He saw the provision Abraham did. So Yahweh is going to provide and appear and you'll be able to see what he does. Now this passage builds all through the scripture. In 2 Chronicles 3 of all places, Chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Remember the story. David was a man of war and a man of bloodshed. He wanted to build a temple complex. God said, no, you build yourself a house, but your son will build my home. So David, being a, a wise, brilliant, very wealthy king, assembles all the building materials for several years so that Solomon, when his son gets to age, will have what it's required to build the temple complex. And then Solomon will take over and build that temple complex. And chapter 3, again, of Second uh, Chronicles, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple complex, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, as where the Lord had appeared to his father David on the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, or technically the Jebusite. All right, why am I reading this? This image we've had here, this whole series, is not just a roughly uh, sketched mountain range. To talk about Mount Moriah would like to be, say, ro the Rocky Mountain. The Rockies are a series of mountains. We call them the Rockies, and they have individual names. In antiquity, when God said, go to Moriah, to a mount I will show you, it wasn't named. It later became known as Mount Moriah. This elevation is not just an artist's rendering. This is Wayland Smith's artist's rendering. But we talked through and looked at images of the mountain area there. And this is a very good rendering of what that mountain would have looked like, elevation and shape-wise, in antiquity. Now today, right where that box is appropriated, if you were to take a shoebox without the top, and cut the sides roughly and set it on this plateau so that the top of the shoebox was flat. That's what you see today when you look on a Google map or a bird's eye map and you look at the, the Dome of the Rock. And when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go to Israel, when you go to Israel, depending on the climate, you may or may not be able to get up on top of the plaza, it's called. Black Plaza was built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a megalomaniac builder. He built more around the world than anyone ever before or since. He makes Trump look like a joke in his buildings. This guy built stuff all over the world. And he built the temple complex on top of what Solomon had started. And therefore, known as the Herodian Temple. Herod the Great, the Herodian Temple Complex. When you look at today, you see the Dome of the Rock, the mosque. On the other end is the Al-Osk Mosque. Between those two uh, um, Muslim buildings... Probably not 30 feet south of the Dome of the Rock is the very stone where Abraham strapped his son on wood. 
This isn't, this isn't like we don't know for sure. This is like 30 feet either way. Because the top of this rock, the top of this mountain is a rock. It's a rocky surface. It's not like the Rockies. It's one big rock on the top of this thing. And so the elevation where they built the temple complex. So Herod was, was doing a building project on top of Solomon's temple complex. Much, much smaller than what Solomon built. But even if you want to be super conservative and say it's 100 feet in any direction. Let's just say 100 yards if you don't believe me. This is Mount Moriah. So the very spot where he took Isaac and put a blade to his neck was the very spot the temple complex will be built. And the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And how many hundreds of thousands of animals were slaughtered in that temple complex during its prime? And today when you go, of course, when you get up on the top, the Muslims control it. The Israeli police are there, but they essentially control it, how it's accessed. And you stand there and you look at the, the cacophony of religions. The, the Jews... The Christian and the Muslims all saying this is the most important site on the planet. No small sense of irony. Abraham, will you take your son and kill him? Yes, the Lord's going to provide and the Lord sees. Ra'ah, and he does all the way through the temple complex. Well, true worship is presenting our best to God and trusting him even when it makes no sense. It's to trust him when we don't know the outcome. It's to believe that he's carried us thus far. It's God's vote of confidence that I can believe him no matter what my experience tells me. True worshipers enjoy the reassurance of his blessing. In verses 15 to 18, the second time, verse 11, that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. And he reassures him, because you have done this thing, the causal statement, not previously promised blessing, because you've done this thing. You've proved your faith, we might say. God believes you. God knows you'll do anything he asks of you. That's how great your faith is. The reassurance that God is with him. Um, I tell myself a lot of things. I, I, preachers preach to themselves. It's one of these sicknesses we have, but we preach to ourselves. Every morning I wake up, a number of things go through my mind. One is, you've got you to gotta get out of bed. Because that's my roughest time of the day. I feel like I've been hit by a gravel truck and my pain is at its worst level. And I go, easily, you got to get out of bed. Then I tell myself, just do the next thing. Because the notion of getting out of bed, standing up, walking to the restroom, showering, shaving, get dressed, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of overwhelming. Any of you feel that way besides me? It's just like it's overwhelming. All I got to get done. Some of you got kids to get done. I mean, God bless you. I'm glad I'm so past that. <laughs> I have great empathy for young moms. Boy, do I have empathy for you. I remember those days. I'm so glad we're gone. <laughs> but uh, you're just like, oh, one more day, one more day. I, so I say, Michael, do the next thing. I tell myself that many times a day. Just do the next thing. Because the list is too long. It's just too stinking long. Michael, get out of bed. Michael, do the next thing. And then I ask myself the question, will you serve yourself or will you serve your Savior? And I'm not hyper-spiritual. I'm not any better than anybody in this room. But those are the three things that pop into my head every morning I wake up. Michael, you got to get to bed. you got to just do the next thing. And then the question, will you serve yourself or will you serve your Savior? I think that's a pretty good run in a life of faith. I'm not saying I did it perfectly. I don't. Don't hear me. Don't hear me say I'm an example. Please. I'm encouraging you to reframe how you view your life of worship. It's not about me. My part is getting out of bed. My part is doing the next thing, if that's a part. My part is, 
Will I say yes to him and no to self? Michael, will you serve yourself or will you serve your Savior? And it's a battle all day long. Will you serve yourself or will you serve your Savior? And Abraham is the patriarch that speaks to us still. Because you've done this thing. The promise continues the last four verses. I will not read, but verses 20 to 24 now, it came about after these things, a transition in the text, and what we find from the storyline is that Rebecca is mentioned, so the promise of the provision is carrying on. Abraham, it's going to be all right. And Rebecca is, oh, by the way, Rebecca. The name enters the storyline, and that becomes the lineage of hope as we continue in the life of Abraham. The test for Abraham, does he fear God? Will he obey him? The test for you and me are going to come in all shapes and sizes. We're not, we're not going to know it's a test. When it comes, we have an opportunity to respond. So when the challenges in the marriage, when the challenges with the child, when the infertility comes, when you've got a divorce you're going through, when one of you has an affair, when you find out you've got Alzheimer's, when you find out you've got a spot, when you find out you've got cancer, lymphoma, prostate, whatever it is, when you find out, that's the human condition. We're in a fallen body, in a fallen context, in a fallen condition. When the test comes, why me? Why now? Why, Lord? What have I done wrong? What's the best treatment? Who's the best doctor? Who's the best psychologist? Who's the best attorney? We run horizontal. We all do. Who can fix my problem? I'm not saying it's wrong to run horizontal. I think it's part of our human nature. But when you take a breath in the middle of the trial, it's a test. How will you, how will I respond to the test? By faith or by fear? By faith or by human ingenuity? By faith or positive mental attitude? I can beat this. I can fight this. I always marvel at people that, and I don't mean this condescendingly, but I'm fighting cancer. What does that mean? Having chemotherapy trying to kill you is what they're trying to do. And you're fighting through it. I understand the attitude part of it. I'm not, I'm not making light of that. Some of you have been through it. But I'm asking the question, what are we really doing? Are you trusting God? God can use all kinds of means. He can use medicine. He can use people. Or he can not. And I've got medical friends who spend their life trying to save folks, and they don't get to save them all. Because we're all going to die. Another cheery message brought to you from Michael Easley. <laughs> this earth is not our home. This life at best is a clean bus station. We're sojourners. We're travelers. We're on a journey. And the journey and all the yellow and red lights are, will you trust me? Will you believe me when the test comes? Is the test self-inflicted from sin? Sometimes, yes. I almost think that's an immaterial question anymore. I don't, if it's my sin or the sin condition or the fallen world, does it really matter why I'm in the test? What matters? How do we respond to the test? Yes, we should say, Lord, if I'm sinning, show me. And I confess and I repent. Yes, a thousand times yes. Yes, I'm not, dim not diminishing that. But does that really matter? What matters is how are you going to face that test? And we'll go through emotions. We'll fly. We'll fear. We'll freak out. We'll do all kinds of things. Will you come back and say, you're sovereign, I'm not. You're God, I'm not. I'm not going to challenge you with my prayers and try and manipulate you. 
My prayer, whenever I face things, and I've prayed it over some of you, I've prayed it over people who go into surgery and die, I've prayed it over people that have lived, and I pray it all the time, is, Lord, I know you're able to do this. My prayer is, will you be willing? Just because he's able does not mean he has to do it. Because after all, we're not going to live forever, are we? To fear him is to obey him at his word. Ask the men and women to distribute the Lord's, element, Lord's Supper elements at this time and for our band to come back. This is a very fitting passage to commemorate the Lord's table. And as we conclude, we're going to sing two songs. And I want to encourage you, pay very, very close attention to these lyrics. Um, the men and women who've put the service together have worked very hard at a theme from last weekend all the way through this weekend. And they've, in my humble opinion, it's an extraordinary job tying this off, tying this together with the last two songs we will sing uh, corporately. To remind you of the elements, uh, we are a church that has open Lord's Supper, so if you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome to partake with us. Uh, a very familiar passage that we have, uh, often turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says, I delivered that which I received. What, what God gave him, he gives to us that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks and I stop here every time and make the comparison and contrast the night of his betrayal he gives thanks one of his 12 closest friends betraying him for 30 pieces of silver and Jesus gives thanks the word give thanks in that passage is Eucharistes some of us came from traditions where it was called the Eucharist or the host it's a piece of bread it's a cracker crumb it's an element it's not special or sacred or convenes grace. It's just an element. And what the passage is not saying, he took a host and broke it. He took a, a, some Eucharist. It says, when he was betrayed, he Eucharistes. He gave thanks and broke the bread. So he's giving thanks to God that this thing that you've given to my disciples is to remind them of who I am, that I'm fully human, fully God. I came here. My body was broken. Because Isaac wouldn't have been enough. Blood of bulls and goats wouldn't be enough. It had to be the Lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sin of the world. Paul continues, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we call it an ordinance because we were commanded to do it. We're commanded to be baptized, to obey, not delay, but to be baptized. So we're identifying with Christ and we're identifying with his death here. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This was more than likely the third cup of the Passover process. It was red wine in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the emblem is what's in the cup, the red wine commemorating the red blood. So the broken body, the animal is bro broken, cut in two covenant-wise, but the new covenant was the shed blood. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. No more sacrifices are needed. Your shem is not a sacrifice that you're giving something up. It's an emblem. It's a picture. It's an illustration. It's a prop. But what are you hanging on to? There's one sacrifice. That was Christ. He was the only one that accomplished what God intended. It was his son, his only son, whom he loved. And he willingly crawled on Calvary. And he willingly let those soldiers drive nails in his wrists and his feet. And he willingly died in your place and mine instead of us on our behalf.
Father, we hold a piece of bread as an emblem of your body broken in our place. We can never be good enough. We can never work hard enough to get your attention. But you were kind enough to send your son to die. And so we take and eat this bread, giving thanks for you and your work. Take and eat. When we drink the cup, I like to have us say out loud, I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Paul said. Every time we do this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Because he lived, died, was buried, and he'll return. And Paul says, this is a proclamation. So say with me, I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Take and drink.